Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome back to the realest podcast in the dunya. You joined today with the three regular hosts, the three Muslims, and we are joined today with Sheikh Kamal. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. How are you doing today? Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. How are you guys? Alhamdulillah, ya Rabb. Tamam, we're doing good. Subhanallah. So, first, Sheikh, let me ask, were you born in Canada where we currently live? Uh, yes, I was born here um, in Toronto. Toronto, mashallah. So what was Toronto like perhaps 20, 30 years ago before I was born? Uh, Toronto was um, uh, not not too different, but from a lot of angles, uh, things were very different. Uh, um, I would say, like I grew up in the in the late 80s, um, and throughout the 90s and um, things were not like they are today in the sense of um, uh, the spread of Islam I would say um, Islam was starting to spread in terms of you know uh, us Muslims being a visible minority we were not I wouldn't say we were a visible minority then but um, today we are like almost wherever you go in the GTA uh, you find Muslims uh, in those days, it wasn't like that. Uh, even if Muslims were concentrated in certain areas, even then, like, um, uh, you couldn't tell that, you know, uh, we were a visible minority. Um, growing up, uh, you know, we're talking about pre-internet age. Um, uh, you know, forget about social media. There wasn't even any internet. Um, and so things were much different um, than obviously with the internet age and information age and then social media. Okay, subhanAllah. So my next question, I think like this question is begged. The pros and cons of living as a Muslim back then in Toronto or in the, in the West in general versus the pros and cons of living as a Muslim today in the West. What would you say those are? Uh, to be honest, um, uh, Muslims living in the West, whether it was back then or whether it is today, uh, we still face the same uh, issues and the same uh, obstacles uh, practicing Islam uh, growing up here in, in the West. Uh, in the sense that um, uh, many Muslims are, you know, still uh, want to hide their identity. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to um, be seen as Muslims. They want to fit in. Uh, a lot of peer pressure, like those things have not changed. What has changed, I would say, is um, uh, there being more uh, opportunities for the youth, uh, you know, in terms of more masajid, more uh, centers, more activities, you know, uh, the youth have, you know, more places to go uh, to be with the Muslims than in those days. In those days, it was, it was difficult. Uh, and, um, you know, maybe you would have uh, one or two masjids who would be doing something, like who would even have a gym, for example. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, um, uh, in that sense, uh, today it's better. Um, but like I said, you know, the, 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 the issues are still the same issues. Yeah, yeah. 
And I can say that hundred percent, you know, someone who grew up in, in these same places, um, I myself didn't even start practicing being a born Muslim into a Muslim family. I didn't start practicing until 16, 17. It's because I came across a video on YouTube talking about like Iblis and Islam and all of that. Um, mm -hmm. And then subhanAllah from, from there, I, I basically made Islam my surroundings and I went based off that. But, you know, then that leads me to, to ask how many people actually had that experience because subhanAllah, all these different um, ways of thinking, um, that begin with secularism, liberalism mm -hmm. that are projected onto the Muslims. These are things that, you know, are inherently by definition un-Islamic and that actually go yeah. against Islam. Mm -hmm. So how would you, how would you say those affect the Muslim youth and the older generations today? Yeah, uh, definitely. <clears throat> In living, uh, you know, I could tell you from my own experience, you know, I, uh, uh, although I grew up here, uh, I left, Canada at the age of 19. I went to study. And then I spent, uh, you know, the next, you could say, 17 years uh, abroad studying. Uh, I could tell you, like, you know, the, the huge contrast of living as a Muslim in the West versus living as a Muslim in the East. Now, I'm not trying to say that, uh, you know, there's no problems in Muslim countries. Uh, for sure, there are, you know, uh, whenever we talk about the issue of, uh, you know, uh, hijrah, for example, um, migrating to a Muslim country, uh, we get a lot of criticism for that. Uh, because it's like, we're trying to say that, you know, there's a utopia, utopia out there, and all Muslims should go. And, you know, everything will be fine. I'm not saying that, you know, uh, Muslim countries have their own problems. But I will say that environment plays a huge role environment plays a huge role your surroundings play a huge role on uh, your identity as a muslim so when we are here in the west we are surrounded by as you mentioned these ideologies liberalism secularism uh atheism uh feminism etc and many times we muslims we will pick up uh, aspects of these ideologies without even realizing it without even noticing it um and that's and that's only because we are, you know, in that environment. Uh, if you were in a Muslim environment, you wouldn't pick those ideologies up. Uh, you wouldn't pick them up as easily. I'm not saying that, you know, we don't have youth in Muslim countries who don't, who have not adopted these ideologies. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that they're a minority. Why? Because the surroundings play a huge role, uh, and that's why the famous uh, historian. Uh, Ibn Khaldun, who has his famous um, uh, book, uh, Al-Muqaddimah, uh, he mentions in it that um, uh, wherever you are, or, or in fact, he was mentioning in general, uh, where you have uh, a powerful nation and a powerful uh, dominant uh, empire, let's say, uh, civilization, uh, those who are inferior, the other civilizations, the other nations that are inferior, their people will look up to uh, the more superior nation and civilization, and they will follow in their footsteps and they will imitate them and they will want to be like them. So that is the case today. Uh, Muslims around the world, in fact, uh, we are not superior. We have this inferiority complex. And so um, we want to be like the West. We want to adopt many of their, you know, ways of life. 
And so imagine if you're living in that, in the midst of that environment, such as here in the West, uh, you're going to pick up these, these un-Islamic uh, uh, ideologies uh, without noticing it. And then you're going to try to somehow uh, try to bridge between these ideologies and stuff. And that's what we're seeing. Unfortunately, the Muslims, the vast majority of them here in the West, uh, want to practice an Islam that somehow uh, mixes between Western culture and their Islam. And uh, uh, you know, the, the reality is that Islam has its own way of life. Uh, and um, uh, you know, many aspects of Western culture and civilization are completely anti-Islam. We have to say it as it is. Uh, we're not saying that you know uh, we can't take the good from from that civilization. Uh, we take the good as long as it doesn't contradict uh, what our deen uh, teaches us. Yeah. So, Habibi, what was it like living in a Muslim country versus over here in the West? Uh, well, like I said, um, when you're in a Muslim country, you're surrounded by Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's forget about, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, Islam is not being implemented the way it should be. Uh, and instead you have man-made laws in almost every single Muslim country. Uh, so, and you have aspects of Islamic laws, you know, uh, being implemented, but, you know, the reality is that the Sharia is not, uh, being implemented, uh, anywhere in any Muslim country, the way it should be. Uh, forget about the Muslim rulers. Forget about uh, you know uh, that aspect. Just the fact that you are uh, around, surrounded by Muslims. You have masajid. You have the adhan being called. Uh, wherever you go, you're, you're you're greeting Muslims. Muslims are greeting you. Wherever you go, you have you know halal meat. You have uh, restaurants. Uh, you don't have these issues that we face uh, here uh, as Muslims, where we are surrounded by the opposite. We are surrounded by the kufar. We are surrounded by kufar. Uh, and so that aspect of, 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 of Islam, uh, that aspect of you, know, you practicing your deen, the, we, could, we could call it the, the social aspect. The social aspect of practicing Islam uh, is much easier there. Is much, much easier there. And uh, as for the other aspects, like I said, uh, you know, uh, we're not talking about that, but uh, just that aspect, um, it basically gives you a sense of identity, as I said, where, uh, you know, uh, you don't feel strange, you don't feel like a stranger, uh, but rather you are a part of this ummah, you are a part of this ummah, and I remember uh, growing up, um, uh, my background is uh, is Pakistani, and my parents used to make it a point to take us back uh, to visit uh, Pakistan when we were very, very young, when we were kids. And I realized that that played a huge role in, in me, you know, wanting to later on uh, go and, you know, live among, among Muslims in a Muslim country. Uh, and the reason for that is because of that bond that was you know, uh, that, 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 that was being uh, built there for me, you know, and then later on, later on, I look at my, 
you know, some of my friends who didn't have that opportunity, who grew up here and not once did they leave Canada or the West. They lost that and today they have no interest. They have absolutely no interest for going to a Muslim country. I'm talking about even the ones who later on start practicing. So they're practicing Muslims, but they don't feel that, that, that need to identify themselves with the Ummah. You know, that, 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 uh, that, that, that feeling of, you know, you belong to an Ummah uh, was built for me from a young age. Why? Because I saw, I saw, you know, my Muslim brothers and sisters uh, in other Muslim countries. Uh, when you're living in the West, you, yes, I mean, we're living in the West, we're, we're living in a very multi multicultural uh, environment where you have Muslims from around the world here, but it's completely different to go and actually visit those places and to see those places. And when it's done from a young age, uh, it, it uh, you know, builds that sense of, that sense of ummah in, in, in the Muslim. Hmm. So when did you go out there to start studying? Uh, this was in, I would say the year 2002. Yeah. So in 2002, uh, I went, um, I went with my father for Hajj and then, um, uh, from there I went to Egypt and my father returned to Canada and, um, yeah. And then I spent some time in Egypt learning Arabic and then I went to, uh, I went to Saudi I spent some time in Riyadh, uh, and then from there I went to Medina, uh, spending uh, about uh, eight years in Medina. Uh, and then after that, I went on to uh, a different university in Saudi, um, in a place called Qasim. Uh, Qasim is uh, approximately uh, 500 kilometers east of Medina, uh, closer to Riyadh. And uh, it's known for um, a place that has produced a lot of scholars. Uh, that was the hometown of uh, Sheikh uh, Ibn Uthaymin, uh, who passed, uh, passed away about 20 years ago. And so I did my master's there. And uh, yeah, I spent about seven years there, seven, eight years there. And then I came back. That's, that's a long time that you were doing your studies. I was just about to ask about that. What, what was it like? Do you recommend that people go study there? What was the education and the timeline like? Yeah, uh, uh, definitely. Um, if one wants to go to study, I would advise that they pursue um, what we can call traditional learning uh, with academic learning. Uh, and so, you know, traditional learning, what I mean by that is going and studying under the scholars sitting at the feet of the scholars, studying under them. Uh, traditionally, uh, you know, the various uh, classical books. Academic learning is, you know, the university style um, uh, where you have a structured program that you go through, etc. Uh, someone who combines these two ways, uh, obviously with a sincere intention, uh, there is no doubt that you know, he will, he, he is basically treading the path of the scholars. And uh, if he works hard enough, he will become a scholar. So yeah, I would, I would definitely advise anyone who wants to go to study that, uh, you know, uh, they should do so. Obviously, uh, things have changed dramatically uh, in Saudi in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the course that 
they're going in uh, currently. And so that has affected uh, the universities, the, 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 um, the learning, the studying, uh, where unfortunately many of the scholars have been imprisoned. Uh, many other scholars have been banned from teaching. Uh, these same scholars that I'm talking about were out and we benefited from them. Uh, you know, uh, over the course of the last, uh, you know, uh, 15 years or so. Wow. SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah. So did the curriculum change? Yeah, and the curriculum, they're saying, uh, they're saying uh, it will be, it will be changing as well. Wow. Uh, I, I have not seen that. I mean, I left before all of these major changes, uh, but from what I'm hearing, uh, you know, that's what they're saying. Okay, so question. You have someone who's studying Islam, they're going deep into their studies, but they haven't done the actual proper studies underneath uh, the scholars. And then you have someone who has, and then they become a scholar. Is there a, a big difference in terms of uh, their studies, in terms of their intellect, in terms of... Uh, where they are getting everything from, or would you say it's roughly the same? It's just this one is accredited because it's underneath the scholars, while this one is not accredited, so they can't claim to be a sheikh or a scholar. Uh, look, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, scholarship in Islam, uh, it's not by how much you study. It's mm -hmm. not by how many degrees you have, how many certificates you have, how many ijazas you have. It's not about how many scholars you could name as being your teachers. It's not about how long, how, how many years you've studied. Uh, it all goes back to uh, the tawfiq of Allah in the end of the day. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choosing a person to become a scholar. And that happens through two ways with regards to the person. And these two ways are firstly, having the sincere intention, having ikhlas. And this is one of the most difficult things for the student of knowledge, because many times the student wants to go out uh, on this path of seeking knowledge because he sees other you know, scholars or du'at and you know, they have status, they're looked up to. Some of them are celebrity scholars. And so they want to become like them. They say, okay, this is what I want to become. So they leave their home on the path of seeking knowledge, and this is their intention. This is a corrupt intention. They'll never become a scholar like that because you know the intention from the very beginning was for the sake of the dunya. So the first thing, as I said, is sincerity of intention. The second thing is hard work. A person can be as sincere as he wants, but maybe he's lazy and you know he sleeps all day and he doesn't put in uh, the effort. Uh, the effort comes in, as I said, through two ways, academic learning and uh, traditional learning. So those who were with us, who studied with us, you had some who had put more emphasis on their academic studies and uh, they would pass all their exams. They would, you know, uh, they, they would always be getting uh, you know, uh, the, the top marks in class and whatnot, but they wouldn't go out of their way outside of the university to study on those scholars. 
And so they became what we could call academics. You know, today they're, they're academics, they're, they're good at researching. They're good at, uh, you know, um, uh, writing papers. And that's good. I mean, I'm not, I'm not you know, bad-mouthing them. I'm not saying that this is not needed in our ummah. But I wouldn't call them uh, scholars. We wouldn't call them scholars in the Islamic definition. Western definition of a scholar is someone who has a PhD, right? Uh, but that's not the case. Uh, in, in Islam, we don't, we don't call a PhD holder an alim. A scholar, uh, but rather an alim uh, is someone who has mastered all of the Islamic sciences. We're talking about, you know, all of them, you know, from aqidah to hadith to fiqh, usul uh, al-fiqh, the Arabic language, uh, the Quran, all of that. He's mastered them. Uh, he's memorized these various uh, mutun, these various classical uh, books. And, uh, and an important ingredient for, for being that alim is, uh, uh, is action. You know, being a scholar who practices, uh, who practices what he preaches, who practices the knowledge that Allah has given to him. And that's where many fall short. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, that's one of the most difficult things after the intention. The intention is very difficult. And then uh, also uh, putting into practice the knowledge uh, that you have. Well said. All right. Oh. <laughs> Bro, one thing that popped into my mind hmm. was when you came back to the West, what were some things that initially you know just hit you and you were just like you got that little bit of a, a cognitive dissonance things that you know when you were here you were a little bit desensitized to and then you really noticed it when you came back mm -hmm. uh that's a very good question because um uh that was the very first thing i addressed in my very first khutbah when i came back uh and that is uh just uh, the, the 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 sins that surround us in in uh, in this environment. Uh, me coming from that environment, uh, where you know uh, I didn't see these things, even though I grew up with them. I mean, it wasn't something that came to me like you know, like oh my god, what is this? I'm not talking about that kind of reaction, but just the 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 idea that wow, I'm back in this filth again. Uh, and the reason why I, I addressed it, I, I chose to address this topic in my very first khutbah is because I knew that the majority of the Muslims are desensitized to many of these sins and to much of the filth that's out there. We're desensitized to it uh, because we're living in it and we become accustomed to it. And I knew that... Uh, before long, I will also become de desensitized to it. So let me address it now uh, before, before that happens. So I remember I, I addressed it and um, uh, the khutbah was about, you know, being, being aware of uh, becoming uh, desensitized to, to the sins that are around us and uh, to the filth that's around us. And after the khutbah, the brothers 
they said we decided not to to, to live stream the khutbah <laughs> and to take it off because it was uh, you know they, they felt it was a bit too uh, too reactionary or too uh, too hard and it might get them in trouble uh, and and yeah so uh, you know I, I feel that uh, even until now I feel that these are issues that we need to actually be speaking about and the reason for that is because if you have uh, our imams and our khatibs uh, only speaking about let's say you know doing doing good deeds uh getting closer to allah through different acts of ibadah etc uh without pointing out without pointing out the dangers that we live in then the muslims you know they'll never wake up they'll think that you know uh their surroundings you know the, the field that's out there it's completely okay. Uh, they're already desensitized to it. They're already accustomed to it. They'll think it's not a big deal. And mm -hmm. that's a reality that we, we live in. Uh, where, you know, uh, you have many Muslims, uh, like our sisters, for example, who, uh, you know, they, they have a certain attire, certain type of hijab that they believe is completely okay. Um, they think that the hijab only means a, a piece of cloth on your head when you know uh, and and you could wear anything underneath some of them think that um, as long as my skin is covered I can wear whatever I want and they wear the tightest of clothes and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam warned of a time that will come when uh, when there will be women who will, who will be clothed they'll be wearing clothes but they're naked and the scholars, they interpret that to mean that they're wearing skin-tight clothes. And the Prophet Sallallahu uh, he cursed such women. He cursed them. So uh, I'm just mentioning this as an example. One small example. Uh, otherwise, you know, the examples are many. <clears throat> it, uh, it, it makes me think about what Brother Fayez says, where it's like shaitan works in steps. And like, let's say you have music playing in the background and this is just part of the culture and you grow up, there's always music all around you. Maybe your parents are like, oh, don't listen to music, it's haram, uh, but you're exposed to it. And after mm -hmm. a while, you're going to be listening to it and then you're going to become desensitized to it. And this all happens in, in baby steps, you know? So it's like, let's say uh, you get a, a fresh Muslim from uh, the East, uh, a Muslim country. They come over here to the West. You play them a song in which it's talking about sex, drugs, and killing people. And they'll be like, oh, stuck for Allah. Stuck for Allah, like, turn that off. I don't want to hear anything like that. You have a born Muslim, and I'm, I'm not trying to generalize everything, but this is for the example, the, the thought experiment here. You have a born Muslim, they've been exposed to this, they are desensitized. So now they can hear this song and it'll be playing in the background, but it won't even, they're not even reacting to it. To them, they feel like, ah, you know what? I'm not listening to it. I'm not uh, acknowledging what's being said. Like, this isn't what I listen to is in the music. 
but it's it's playing you're allowing it to be in the background because you've become desensitized to it it's because of those steps that this person went through that now they are open to this versus Mm -hmm. the muslim that's like coming from the east like he hears that he's like oh stuff for a lot he's gonna get out of that environment he doesn't Mm want to be anywhere near that Mm-hmm. so yep. Allah, man. that's very true and that is how shaitan works he doesn't he doesn't come to you right away uh you know he doesn't come to you and say commit zina uh but rather he starts with the gaze and that's why allah azza wa jal uh commanded us to lower our gaze somebody may think what's a big deal just a look it's something so small mm-hmm. but that's where it starts from and uh that's why in the quran allah azza wa jal did not uh, say, uh, do not commit zina, but rather Allah Azza wa Jal said, "Wala taqrabu zina." Do not come near zina. Allah did not say, "Don't commit zina," but don't even come near it. Meaning those baby steps, those steps of shaitan, and also "Wala tatabi shaitan." Do not follow in the footsteps of shaitan. Why did Allah Azza wa Jal call it the footsteps? Because that's you know, that's exactly what it is. Uh, you know, shaitan, that's how he drags us uh, into committing those sins. And so uh, that's how sins, they they they, they destroy us. Um, and that's why uh, the scholars say that um, the minor sins that we look at as being insignificant, as being small, not a big deal, when they pile up and we... Uh, are persistent in those sins, they are equal to a major sin. They are no different to a major sin. Uh, if we continuously persist in that sin and we don't care about it and we don't you know, ask Allah to forgive us uh, for those sins. And let me tell you something, man. Before I became Muslim uh, about a year ago, alhamdulillah, uh, I, had, I had a very bad issue with my my sexual desire uh, with women, uh, pornography and stuff like that. I actually went through this. Um, they they call it no fat. The kufar call it no fat, where you you stop doing everything for X amount of time, and it's like after that time frame, you can choose to continue or you can choose to just go right back to watching pornography and you know touching yourself and all that stuff. One of the things that I realized when I was doing this after failing repeatedly over and over and over and over again is that if I didn't lower my gaze, it just, it led to this snowball effect where it ultimately led into me relapsing and watching pornography. Mm-hmm. And it's like, now that I'm on Dean, now it's like, oh, I see it. I see the truth. It, it says it in the Quran where it's like lower your gaze and and this is something that I was realizing just from going through those motions mm-hmm. subhanallah man subhanallah yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, I think that's what you know even now psychologists that's what they say that you need to cut it out from the root and you need to completely stay away from it and there is no way to stay away from it uh, except by lowering the gaze mm-hmm. and uh, that's the first step uh, and as uh, Ibn Qayyim, he says that uh, the sight, our sight, is basically the arrow, the arrow uh, that shaitan uses to, 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 to hit our heart. 
and that's how he comes to us. Let's be honest. How does a man, I'm not even going to say a young man, because this, this is for every single man. How does a man lower his gaze, especially here in the West? Mm-hmm. You guys, you guys know for sure how difficult it is over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, definitely. I gave a khutbah on this a uh, few weeks ago. Maybe it was uh, in the beginning of the summer, uh, specifically for that reason, because the summer was coming and uh, it was important to address it. Uh, basically, there, there's no doubt that there is no, uh, there is no better way to, to do it except by realizing the greatness of Allah. When you realize the greatness of Allah and who Allah is, uh, you will, you know, have that consciousness of Allah that Allah is watching you. And that's why in the ayah where Allah commands us to lower our gaze, what does Allah say? How does he end the ayah? And this is something I, I, I want to share with you guys that the Quran is definitely miraculous. And, you know, uh, one of its uh, miraculous uh, aspects is the ending of the ayat. Why does Allah end certain ayat with certain attributes and names of him, subhanahu wa ta'ala? There's a secret behind each ayah. So in that ayah, uh, you know, tell the believing men, Say to the believing men that they should lower their gaze and guard their private parts. That is purer and better for them. And then Allah says, Allah is well aware of what they do. Khabir, khabir means uh, the one who knows, well aware. And the scholars say the difference between khabir and alim. So alim means the one who knows as well, right? Uh, alim means the one who has knowledge. Khabir also, it has that same meaning. But the difference between the two is that khabir is someone who uh, knows something very well. And that's why in the Arabic language, you say... Um, to someone who's a specialist in something, that he is khabir, that he is a khabir, he's a specialist, uh, he's skilled at this particular thing. And in the Quran, Allah only uses khabir to mention his knowledge of things that otherwise are unknown to most people. So when Allah says that he is well aware of what you do, it is signaling to us that yes, you'll be looking at those women thinking that those around you, your friends, didn't know what you were looking at, but Allah knew. Hmm. So you, 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 you secretly take a glance and you're with your friends. They didn't know, but Allah is telling you he knew. And so inculcating that idea of the greatness of Allah, that Allah is watching me, that is, there is no better way for us to help ourselves to lower our gaze and Allah knows best. I think a big issue, and I'm going to speak for uh, reverts because I don't know if it's the same for Boeing Muslims over here in the West. 
but like I grew up with this uh thing where I was taught is like you should look at people in the eyes you should look at people and acknowledge them and um I was also taught that like I should look at women and if I lowered my gaze from women it was either one that I was gay or two that I was weak and it's like now I have this the Quran and my own experience from what I told you when I was trying to get rid of the pornography addiction where it's like look lowering the gaze Allah has decreed it for us and my experiences showed me that lowering the gaze is essential but then I have like this this uh different narrative that I was taught that's like over here battling all the time where it's like I see a woman and obviously my natural sexual desires my inclinations and this other narrative is over here like look 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 at her uh, acknowledge the presence get attention talk to her go do this go do that but it's like man it, it's a huge battle and I, again i'm gonna speak for reverse here i don't know if that if if it's like that for a born muslim men yeah yeah it's a struggle and uh you know uh we just need to uh continue that struggle and you know not not give up so i mean bro subhanallah so in the last few minutes um i feel like uh, this is something i wanted to mention earlier but on hell some really really uh good questions mashallah um i feel it's important to mention some practical examples of things that we believe that were propagated by the west that we see as normal right this is just being one of them you know the gaze the glance um having you know boys girls mixed together men and women mixed together not segregating these are things that like if we call for segregation like we're we're weirdos basically right the same way if, if um if even if a woman wants to be a housewife nowadays it's like that's weird right polygyny is like you don't even say the word nowadays um but even things like mortgages right this is something that islamically is not coherent but it's so normalized and it's that we have you know different fatwas being given that are saying that i'm not here to give any fatwa i'm not a scholar right i'm not but we have different fatwas saying that you know you can get a mortgage right in this scenario in that scenario and um that the prophet he actually said that in a hadith that there will come a time where muslims look to make men wearing silk uh alcohol zina musical instruments and he named some things they look to make these things halal and this is what we're seeing nowadays because of the West and a few different hadith uh, popped up in my head. Uh, for example, the Prophet والسلام, he said that um, Islam began as something strange and it will return to something strange. And that's exactly what we're experiencing, feeling otherized, alienated, like, like we are the weird ones. We're strange people because we don't adopt certain practices that these people adopt. And the other hadith for the Prophet والسلام, said that uh, basically there will come a time where, where Muslims follow the non-believers. Um, so closely that if the, the non-believer put his hand in the lizard's hole, the Muslim would also put his hand in that lizard's hole. And and exactly what Anhel was saying, you know, non-Muslims are saying, don't lower your gaze, look at the Muslims. And inevitably, when a Muslim does that, he's putting himself in that same lizard's hole because it opens up all these problems that every single man nowadays has, uh, has to face, subhanAllah. Without a doubt, uh, and uh, the Prophet then, concluded that hadith on, on the strange uh, the strangeness he said uh, you know islam began as something strange meaning that in mecca when it began uh, the prophet and his companions were very few 
And uh, their situation at that time is just like our situation today. They were looked at as strangers, like, who are these guys? What are they doing? Uh, they're going against the norms. They're going against our ways, the ways of our forefathers. And so they were looked at as being strange. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, it will once again return to being something strange, meaning that there will come a time when Islam will become dominant and you know that strangeness will go away. And that happened in the time of the Sahaba and for many centuries until there will come a time when that strangeness will come back and we are without a doubt witnessing that today. And then he concluded the hadith by saying, then give glad tidings to the strangers. And so this is a message to us basically that, you know, uh, remain a stranger, you know, remain a stranger. Uh, the Prophet is giving us glad tidings. And, uh, you know, whenever the Prophet gives glad tidings, that means Jannah. It basically means Jannah, whether it's mentioned in the Quran or in the Sunnah, glad tidings means, uh, it basically means Jannah. Absolutely. Absolutely beautiful. Jazakallah khair. So powerful. Unfortunately, unfortunately, this episode is coming to an end, but there's one big question that I do want to ask. Um, it may have been addressed early in this video, but that question is, we are, we're strangers, right? As the Prophet ﷺ said, and may Allah grant us Jannah for it. Living in this time, how do we hold on to our deen? As the Prophet ﷺ said, that there will come a time where holding on to your deen will be like holding on to hot coals. Mm -hmm. How do we hold on to our deen? Yeah, uh, so basically, uh, you know, it is difficult uh, in the times in which we're living in. And, uh, you know, the way to do it is by uh, first and foremost, seeking as much knowledge as we can, uh, because if we remain ignorant, then we're going to fall into, into those traps, you know, uh, without knowing. Secondly, uh, by implementing whatever we've learned. And thirdly, and this is something very important, uh by being around good company by being in good company uh you know i can't stress that enough uh you know shaitan he comes and he takes a lone wolf uh, he, he is the lone wolf and he takes the sheep that uh that basically strays away from the jama'a and so you don't want to be that uh that that prey for the lone uh, for, for the wolf uh, but rather you want to be with brothers. You want to be in good company, brothers who advise one another, who are constantly, uh, you know, telling one another about Allah, about the Akhirah, reminding one another uh, about that. Uh, without a doubt, here in the West, uh, that is something uh, that we need uh, uh, more than anything else. Exactly. <laughs> So I have one final question, unless Faye wants to go. Take it away, bro. My final question, Sheikh. If uh, if a man, let's say I'm walking down the street, and this is serious, please don't take this as a joke. This is serious. If I'm walking down the street and I, I see a woman, if I, like, if our eyes lock, 
I can smile and basically acknowledge the presence, but then keep moving on. Would it, would uh, the gaze be considered when you're, when you're basically looking with sexual lust? Uh, no, uh, basically, uh, the gaze, whether we are, it doesn't matter what kind of look it is, it is haram. And that's because, um, you know, the various evidences that we have in the Quran and in the Sunnah that the Prophet, وسلم, you know, uh, advised us to uh, lower the gaze. And he said, uh, I believe it was to Ali, radiallahu an, that the first gaze the first gaze and the first look is for you. Meaning you're walking down the street and you see her. So that first sight is for you, meaning it is forgiven, it is pardoned. But then the Prophet ﷺ said, as for the second, it is not for you. Meaning if you keep looking, then now you're going to be sinful. Now you're going to be sinful. So we're excused for the first look because you know it was unintentional. But then if we persist in that look, even if it is without lust, uh, it is haram because of what it will do, because of what it will do. And so many times we think it as being harmless, uh, insignificant. Uh, and this is what we spoke about earlier, that you know that's how, uh, that's how uh, shaitan traps us. He says, oh, it's not a big deal. You know, you're not looking with lust, uh, keep looking, you know, but then where is that gonna take you to? Very true. It's very true. Step by step. Subhanallah. May Allah protect us all. Um, One, my my final like closing statements is from my own anecdotal experience. Um, like I said, I started practicing when I was like sixteen or seventeen, and I didn't have brothers and like you know people who would you know say call Allah, call Rasul, and like you know really remind me of Allah, and have sittings where we just discuss Allah and Islam and the Prophet والسلام, I didn't have that. Uh, what I did have, however, was, you know, the Islamic lectures online and seeking knowledge and learning myself. So my advice to the people, because I know there are going to be the people that say, I just don't have anyone like that. I can't find anyone like that. Um, look for them. But until you find them, make this podcast your friend. Make the, the lectures and the, the good, pious people online your friend and become that person for yourself. The Prophet, والسلام, I'll end this hadith, inshallah, he said that, Loneliness is better than bad company and good company is better than loneliness. Meaning that it's better to be alone than to be with bad people, yes. But it is better to be with good people than be alone. But if you must be alone, being alone by yourself is better than being bad and you should be that friend, um, that, that Khalil for yourself, inshallah. Any final closing statements? Take it away, brother. All right. With that being said, it's been a lovely episode. If you want to see the lovely Sheikh Kamal again, or uh, Kamal, pardon me, Sheikh Kamal <laughs> again, I did it again. Uh, comment, bring Sheikh Kamal back. And with that being said, Allahumma atina fi dunya hasana, wa fi al-akhirati hasana, wa kina adab al-nar. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.